know. Um, are, are economic principles then derived from nature and are universally true, or do they do they change over time? So I, I think I, I I hate to get so personal back in, into my take, but the only thing I learned from my high school economics was basic econ was. Uh, I, I don't want to be a teacher because I don't want to become like my basic econ teacher. And something about uh, supply and demand. And I understood the supply and demand uh, graph, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much all I got from it. And unfortunately, once I owned a house, that's when I understood from people like you and and, and Mises and, and Rothbard and the whole slew of, uh, of the, the Institute guys um, how important economics is. Um, then in, in this show, when, when we talk about universal truths, you know, are, are they are they, for lack of a better term, are they derived from God? Does God instill them into place from either His nature or just the, how He's made the universe, or um, is it something that arises out of humanity's kind of fallen nature? Wow, that's a great question. Okay, um... I, I I do have to say one of my most crowning achievements with Twitter was asking you a, 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 a Twitter question was if the fall never happened. Would uh, current economic principles be true? And you said that it won the day. So I have that like framed in my room. So what, what did I? Say? I said that's a question of the day. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. You, I, I think <laughs> I, it, was, it was probably something like to divert away from everyone talking about I don't know Trump or somebody. Uh-huh. And so we're like, well, let's have a discussion on what's really good economic questions. And so that was my question. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> okay, so with the caveat that it's possible. I'm going to say something and dig myself into a <laughs> into a hole, and then later say, "Wait a minute, you know, this, I, I misspoke." Um, Feel free to use it on your podcast. Sure. So it's, yeah, it's no, right. that's good stuff. Um, so I, okay, the, in terms of just the the basic logic of of choice, let's call it, or you know what Mises would call praxeology, the you know the fact that people have a, a they have goals, sub, subjective goals. And they use their reason, you know, they, they pick means to try to achieve them. And so here, there, there's no assumption of being correct. Like if you if, and make sure your listeners get, get the, the distinction I'm getting at here. If you see, like you, if you throw a rock up in the air, and it, you know, it goes in a certain trajectory. We just don't say, oh, at first the rock wanted to go towards the sun and then it changed its mind and went towards the ground. That's just not the way we, we you know, we don't attribute motivation and desires to inanimate things. Right? That's just that's not the way we, we talk nowadays. Whereas if you do see someone you know driving her car and she's going you know towards the store and then does a U-turn and comes back, it's perfectly quote scientific to say, oh, she thought she needed to go to the store and then she realized she forgot her wallet and turned around. You know, you know what I mean? That that's that's yeah. not unscientific to talk like that. You know, to assume that human beings have desires and achieve, you know choose means to try to achieve them. So you can actually derive a lot just from that type of decision let's say like the 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 um yeah i guess the the stance you take as an analyst to say we're going to attribute intentionality and subjective goals to these blobs of cells you know whereas a, a chemist could look at your body just a you know collection of atoms or something like that or a physicist could you know and, and your the constituents of your body in terms of matter presumably obey the laws of physics right and so they could just look at you like that, but that's not the way we look at you as an economist. Right. And so the, a lot of those first principles are actually, there's not really anything empirical or testing about it. So for example, I can spin out a lot of the bullet points that would be covered in an introductory chapter of an economics book, like how to think like an economist you alluded to earlier. 
a lot of those, or I would say all of those principles, they're not really empirical. So things like to say every choice carries a trade-off or, you know, every decision has an opportunity cost or to say people respond to incentives. Those, they're, they're not mere tautologies. It's not that I'm saying a bachelor is an unmarried male, which is really just, you know, a definition. It seems like I'm saying something about reality with those earlier expressions and yet, if I say, you know, okay, every choice has a, a trade-off, you know, how would you test that? You know what I mean? Like, would you go and say, oh, well, we went and we looked at a thousand choices, and in every single one there was a trade-off. So, so far, so good. You'd realize, well, no, you're missing the point. Like, just by the nature of it, if I'm deciding to view what you did as a choice, then necessarily there must be a trade-off because there was a second best thing you could have done, and that, and the value to you of that is what we call the opportunity cost. Okay, so it... It's it kind of the fact that there was an opportunity cost in your decision flows from the fact that I decided to call that a decision. Whereas, if, you know, if someone just flings hot oil on you and you flinch, you didn't really choose to do that. That's just an involuntary bodily reaction. So th- that's the distinction we're, we're making. Um, right. And so all, all those standard principles and even like supply and demand curves in analysis, I can build all that up now. And so the, the issue is. So economics as a science would exist regardless of the condition of, of man, let's say, so long as you know people had choices and subjective goals and, th- and it had reason. Um, but I suppose in the a, a thing probably a lot of economists would say is that in the Garden of Eden, there wasn't scarcity, at least the way we think of it now. And mm-hmm. so it's possible that it wouldn't have been useful to elaborate economics that you wouldn't have needed it for anything so the, it, it wouldn't have been false but it wouldn't have been very useful so i don't know if that's the way to to get it now, and also let me just mention some people do push it even further i think i don't know if mises certainly austrians i can't remember who said this but we're saying even in the garden of eden there would still be the flux of time i think probably it was mises that talks like this and so even if you know, you you had you, like you weren't ever worried about going hungry. Still, at any given moment, you could only be doing one thing, or you know, one subset of things that you could do simultaneously. And so, you'd still have to order your day. You'd still have to come up with what am I going to do right now? What am I going to do next hour? You know, if time still passed. And so, in that sense, there would still be some type of scarcity because you couldn't do everything all at once. That there's a mm. flow of time. And so, then even there, yeah, economics would still apply to your decision on how to order your activities. Um, so that, that's kind of the, let me put it this way. There's, there have been attempts to apply economic reasoning to unconventional areas, things like, uh, you know, choosing a mate or uh, other areas <laughs> or the economics of crime in, in some of those areas, I just think it's kind of goofy or it gives me the creeps even in some places. Like, uh, in, in Freakonomics where it talks about, uh, it's good that we had abortions, uh, because low low income people mm-hmm. tend to cause more crimes, therefore we saw a uh, a, a decrease in crime because of more abortions. Well, but- I mean, so yes, that gives me the creeps. And also, I I think it was uh, what's his name, John Lott. I think came up with some statistic. It might have been somebody else. Maybe John Lott just cited it. I think actually, uh, what's that guy's name? Is it Levitt? I think his his numbers don't hold up. Like his story doesn't work. 
Because if you look at like the demographics of, okay, the age of when the crime rate should have started dropping in terms of what segment of the population, it doesn't fit the story about Roe v. Wade right. and everything. But so, yes, I agree with you. That gives me the creeps too. And that's an economist <laughs> trying to do something outside the norm. But, that, but that's not even what I mean. I mean, stuff like, um, you know, to say, oh, uh, there's the marriage market and as the supply of, uh, you know, I, income earning females rises, that means such and such. And therefore, you know, th- that that kind of stuff, sometimes it gets, it gives me the creeps. And um, <laughs> um, so you can, like, a, like holding off on gold value, like, oh, hold on to your gold or your singleness now because yeah, women prices will be more valuable right, right, in the future. Yeah, that kind of talk. <laughs> and and I get it there and I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling here. I'm trying to come up with. But I mean, you could you could apply it. You could say, oh, the, the supply of, you know, friends entering the playground has gone up. And so therefore, you know, the, the price of, of being a friend has gone down or, da, da, you know, that kind of stuff. And so maybe we would expect kids to, you know, not, uh, to be meaner to each other or whatever. I'm, I'm making stuff up here, but I'm saying <laughs> certain things it, and it's and I don't ju- and I want to be clear. I don't just mean, ooh, it gets it makes me queasy. And so I find it just, I'm, I'm saying like the, the standard like supply and demand analysis because what it does is it's saying other things equal, okay? And so it's right. It, it, um, you know, you know, like for example, you could say, oh, well, if you want your uh, your wife to to be nicer to you, you should just increase the amount you pay her. You know, so that when you come home at night, if you really you know you start giving her twenty dollars every time she says hello, dear, and technically that there's nothing wrong with that, but it's you know it says other things equal, and so maybe one of the other things that's not not equal now is that it's weird if you're trying to give your money to your wife to say hello to you. You know what I'm saying? So right. it's, it's, it's not that it's wrong, but that analysis in some situations and some settings, I think is totally be- beside the point and it's counterproductive. So that's, you know, to, to your earlier, your original question that, yeah, the, I think there are things that just our nature as beings who have reason in subjective goals. So we're, you know, we're individuals, which is what they were, that would come from. You know, maybe it wouldn't work to try to use economics to explain a beehive if, you know, the, the individuals don't have different goals, really. They just all work together to do whatever's in the interest of, you know, the hive or something. Um, you know, given that people are unique individuals with possibly different goals or motivations and they have reason, then, yeah, I think you can spin out the basic structure of the science of economics. But, yeah, if, if it's before the fall there might not be much point in doing so. It might, it might not be that useful for anything. So that might be something uh, a economic theology person would write their dissertation on. Yeah, could be. There you go. <laughs> we're, we're, we're helping people out already, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, Nobel Prize winning economist James Buchanan explains uh, what he calls economic odds in his paper, Afraid to be Free. According to Buchanan, the government, as save review, can be derived from Keynesian economic thought as expressed when citizens may generally want to extend the parental role of the welfare state to allow the state to replace God. And uh, just to be fair, uh, he doesn't say too many good things about uh, uh, deists as well. Uh, but Keynesian economic thought, and and you come from uh, the, the Austrian economic school. Uh, uh, I've always want to preface what you always preface because you always you always do. So I'll, I'll tee it up for you. It's not that uh, you know this d- derives from from uh, only uh, Austria, but that it comes from people f- from Austria. And so uh, uh, um, looking at the Wikipedia page for Austrian economics when I was first starting it, it's terrible. I I, I read it and I'm like. 
this this sounds all gobbledygook. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what what what's the, what's the best way that that we can describe Austrian economics? And obviously, we don't want to replace God with the state as the Keynesians do. So, what what would be the main kind of differences between Austrian economics, your school, and Keynesian economics? Like, uh, it it that tends to be kind of the most popular one for the past what uh, hundred years, ninety years. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so and this is always tricky too. And if you ask different Austrians, they're going to say different things about you know what are the defining attributes of of the school. So, so yes, at the basic level, it's it's a school of thought, just like there's a Chicago school, a Keynesian school, as you mentioned, and the, it's called Austrian because the Karl Menger, the founder, was from Austria. So originally, that was a term of derision because it was like the German historical school economists. This is back in the like 1870s back when there was an Austria. Yeah, right. <laughs> they, <laughs> they were, you know, looking down their nose upon Menger and his, you know, and his disciples that were emerging. And so they said, Oh, that's just Austrian economics. Like, you know, that's a backwater. It's not like here in Germany, which is the center of, you know, scholarship. That was, that was where the term came from. Um, and then world war two happened. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, it's amazing too. It just, just to sidetrack you completely, um, how, how much philosophy is lost and how much bad philosophy comes out of, uh, G- Germany during like world war two time that we could have quashed. And we, we, I'm, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have, have, um, uh, uh, People like writing things like misquoting Jesus uh, because they come from a school of thought that should just be debunked, but because it took so long to come over, it never had uh, the ability to to be to be impacted by other theories. So you just had you know Germany coming up with both good and bad ideas mm-hmm. during during World War II time, and uh, it really needed to be be quashed, especially for for uh, anything Bart Ehrman does. Yeah, I mean it really is amazing. You know, let's. I, I don't know when to start it, but like 1850 to World War One. That yeah, the 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 intellectual milieu of all the people meeting in you know Vienna and in Germany and just all the thinkers involved and people coming and going in different circles is amazing. Or even just like Mises' private seminar when you see the list of who's who and, and the people that you know came in and out of those circles. It's a lot of not just economists, but you know other major philosophers and and political scientists and so forth. Um, yeah. so, so yeah, the, the Austrian school, it's, so it's, it's certain, it's individualistic and I don't mean politically, I just mean like it, it's, it builds up from the individual as the, the locus of analysis. And as opposed to, if you say, well, what else would it be? I mean, cause there, there are types of economics that just look at big macro variables like to say oh what's the price level well you look at the money supply you look at the velocity with which dollar bills turn over and <laughs> then you can back out you know what the price per unit good that sort of thing where it's you know it's looking at, at the economy just as like a, a bunch of big numbers as opposed to you know individual decisions and you know that you could say oh well prices we we start with individuals and they want to hold money and what's the demand for money and that sort of thing so the Austrian economics certainly is, it's, it's called methodological individualism and the other one's methodological subjectivism. And those are big words, but just saying it, they assume individuals are the concrete, you know, the, the atoms that form the analysis and that they have subjective goals. So Karl Menger, who was the founder of the Austrian school in a standard history of economic thought uh, book, 
it would be credited as one of the three people who ushered in what's called the marginal revolution. So that was overturning old classical value theory and replacing it with the new modern subjective value theory. So that's a defining element of Austrian economics because their founder was one of the people that you know brought that revolution. That and, and so there, what does that mean? It's just saying when you're trying to explain prices, the ultimate building block or the, the fundamental building block is the fact that people have subjective preferences. And so ultimately, you know, why is a bottle of wine cost whatever, $50? What's, why is the price $50? You don't start and say, oh, well, because the grapes were really expensive. And so the bottle of wine has to cost that much. Otherwise, the producer wouldn't you know, be able to cover his cost. That, you know, nowadays, the way the economists think, that causality is backwards. It's that the, the final goods that consumers buy is because they have utility for the consumer in the eye of the beholder. And then that works its way backwards. And that's why people are willing to pay for grapes because they can be used to make the wine. Okay. So that type of thinking, that's something that Carl Menger helped usher in. Um, and, and then, I mean, one of the things, the reason I think it's important nowadays for people to know about the Austrian school this guy Ludwig von Mises, he developed a theory of the business cycle that other schools of thought um, can't can't yield because the Austrian school has what's called a an emphasis on capital structure. So, just real briefly, I realize I'm throwing out some big buzzwords here, but in the Austrian tradition, they pay a lot of attention to the fact that. Um, production takes time and that yet things go through stages, let's call them. So this is going to be simplistic, but just so your listeners understand where I'm coming from, like t- to get loaves of bread into the grocery store, you know, that first they got to plant the wheat, then it's got to go to the next stage to the, you know, the, the miller and, and then it goes to the baker and so on. And that, that type of process, Austrians really take that seriously in their modeling. And in particular, they look at how to interest rates, kind of help coordinate the structure of that production process that might, when you're looking at any particular good in its life cycle, as it were, it might take years to develop before the thing that you see, you know, in the store available for purchase. And because the Austrians spend so much time and care developing that understanding of that framework, that's why they can then come in and say, oh, and so if the central bank comes in and artificially manipulates interest rates, say by flooding the market with cheap credit, that pushes down interest rates so they're artificially low, then they can see what would happen. Oh, it might cause an unsustainable boom, right? So that kind of explanation or theory, other schools of thought like the Keynesians can't even really develop because their model doesn't have this capital structure that you know takes unfolds over years. So that it's it's not that the Austrian story is wrong in that approach. It's like you couldn't even tell that story in a standard Keynesian framework because a standard Keynesian framework is just it's it's real macro and aggregated, and there's not enough um, distinctions or or subtlety and detail to allow that sort of story to unfold. So I, I'm just there. That's not like the definition of the Austrian school, but I'm just explaining that's one of the components of it that I think make it so relevant nowadays because that's such an important element of our of our lives yeah. right now. Central banks, in my opinion, engaging in very destructive behavior. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that's that's one of the things that uh, I, I don't know, you know, which which hand was shaking what, but with presuppositional apologetics, uh, we we have certain axioms that that we hold to, and there's not a uh, 
you know, a, 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 a equation that we put everything in and say, you know, okay, add uh, the Kalam argument plus, uh, you know, the resurrection accounts, uh, historicity by, you know, uh, 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 various uh, non-biblical writers, and it, it all equals out to uh, Christianity is true. Uh, we, we hold the fact that, uh, you know, Christianity is true and then derive certain principles from that. And so with, with Austrian economics, I see people act, they act with purpose, uh, w- whether or not those, those purposes are right or wrong. Um, you know, that, that's not the, the argument, but things like, um, you know, how, how, how should we think about uh, um, uh, you know, when a flood happens and people coming over and selling bottles of water for $500? Well, you know, it, it, any, any person that sees that and goes, oh, that's just immoral. But com- coming from your perspective, that, that's a great thing because then someone else will see that and go, oh, I can sell my bottle of water for $400. And someone else can come in and say, oh, I'll undercut them. And so you get a bigger supply into those areas. And, and so uh, uh, the price will drop as a result of people competing with each other. And I think that's just mm-hmm. one of the, the really awesome things to, to, to see is, is how much your worldview of economics informs it. Because uh, things like with, with Keynesian economics, it seems like, well, here's a thousand variables and I have to either skew my my models so that I can deal with those or I can skew it to say well these ones aren't as important and I and I I just like the fact that that you take a a kind of a a, a different approach that explains what we see uh, through these kind of axiomatic uh, uh, argumentation that that uh, that Austrian economics are known for we oh yeah and, and you're right and I didn't explicitly mention that, and I probably should have that. Yeah, when you're saying like, what's the defining attributes of the Austrian school? So yeah, one of the early battles that Karl Menger had with his counterparts in the German historical school. So it's true that Austrians tend to be free market in terms of their policy prescriptions, but it's not built in, right? In other right. words, <laughs> it's not that they just say at the outset, "Oh yeah, we we hate the government" or something like that. Like it, it does flow, <laughs> and. And it's also true in practice that the German historical school, a lot of them were, I would say, apologists, you know, for the Prussian Empire. And so, you know, so Menger with his critiques of some certain, you know, government intervention policies, that was a problem. And so one of the ways that the, you know, German historical school would try to get around that is to say, well, no, you can't it's not like there's laws of economics, you know, everything in matter, it's a case by case basis. So here I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing and they spoke in German. Um, and so, whereas Menger was saying, no, there's laws of economics, right? Right. In other words, like a, a physicist, it's not like, Oh, there's one type of physics that applied back in ancient Rome, but then a different physics applied, you know, in modern day democracies, you know what I mean? Like that, that would be silly talk. And so likewise, Menger thought, no, I'm developing laws of economics, Okay, and whereas the German historical school would have thought more, well, no, what may have been worked back in ancient Rome with their system is one thing, and then now what works for us is a different thing. You see what I'm saying? That that's they were trying to deny that there was such a thing as the laws of economics, and so that that is one right. element. And then also, yeah, Mises, and this is one of his more controversial stances, and even not all modern day Austrians, you know, die on this hill. But Mises himself, and, and certainly like Murray Rothbard and people who are in that tradition of the Austrian school, thought that basic economics was a priori, meaning, yeah, you start fundamentally with the action axiom. You know, if you're going to decide 
to interpret the behavior you see out in the world as the result of conscious choice. I mean, because ultimately you don't know. You can't literally be inside someone else's mind and know that they feel things the way you subjectively know you feel stuff. You just kind of think that that makes sense. That's like a hypothesis, if you will. But once you commit to that, then Mises thought all the standard results of econ, I even call them theorems, you know, so that kind of shows he didn't think it was open to empirical verification flow from that. And, you know, and people derided him as being unscientific and anti-empirical, but likewise, I mean, the analogy I use with geometry, that if, if you're going to learn ge- geometry, is certainly very important. You know, you can't go build a bridge if you don't know anything about geometry. And yet if you said, Oh, here's the Pythagorean theorem and you teach it to someone and they say, well, how do we know that's true? Should we go test a thousand right triangles and make sure it's true? You would say, no, right. no, you've missed the point. You don't understand what a proof is. We have these axioms and you know these rules of transformation. And if you give me the axioms, then I can deduce you know the Pythagorean theorem. It's a theorem. I proved it. And you you wouldn't go test it. And that's certainly not unscientific to to do that. So that's what Mises thought basic economics was. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess you're saying it has a certain overlap with a type of apologetics. Yeah. Can I go back and just say something I meant to say about the, the, yeah. the, the like if there's a natural disaster and like bottled water and that, that thing, because this actually illustrates yeah. well what I was trying to say earlier about is a Christian and like, why should a Christian know economics? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's a good example. So again, let's, let's say the situation is there's a, you know, a, a flood or a hurricane or something and the the roads are all closed. And so right now, yeah, the, the local storekeeper, he's only got a few uh, cases of bottled water on the shelves and he knows he could quote, get away with charging $20 a case or, you know, charging $4 a bottle or something like that. Something that would normally just cost 10 cents or whatever. And so most people are okay. Most Americans at least are okay with the government just flat out prohibiting that. And he's setting up a hotline and say, if you catch anybody trying to price gouge, in the wake of this natural disaster, you know, taking advantage of the poor plight of our fellow citizens, you call this hotline and the attorney general will get on that. And so I would argue that, well, no, as a Christian, you shouldn't be in favor of that because it's, you know, using the threat of violence to get people to do your will. And, you know, someone charging a lot for water, it's not obvious why that should be a criminal offense, right? right? That To me, that's, that's unchristian. You're basically stealing from the person you're saying no you have to sell it under these terms and if you're not willing to sell it under these terms then we're going to throw you in a cage or that we're going to take more yeah. of your money out of your bank account through the state to me that's violating one or two of the ten commandments so that that can't be a christian thing to do and so i think you know the um the, the obvious objection would be well th- that can't be right or you know because it can't be true murphy that the Christian response is to let storekeepers charge whatever the market will bear because, you know, that that's the consequences are too horrible. And so here's where, you know, the, the Bible wouldn't necessarily tell you how to think that through. I think the Bible tells you what the moral position is, but you would need the study of economics to know that, you know, this is stuff, of course, you were alluding to, Patrick. No, actually having a really high price for bottled water is exactly what you want to have happen because that rations the available supply. You don't want it to be the case that the first few people who get to the store after the hurricane hits, clean the shelves out. Mm-hmm. Because if you had that, you know, if, if bottled water is still the same price as it was before the storm, then that's going to happen. The first few people who show up, they're going to buy everything, they're going to put it in their pantry, and then everybody else is going to go thirsty. 
So that's not good. So instead, if you have a high price, then they say, oh, we really probably just need to get, you know, one case of water and that'll hold us over till they clear the roads. And so that's a good thing. And then also, yes, with a high price, that's giving the incentive for people around the country, you know, to go rent big trucks and to fill them up with bottled water and to go ship them into the region to, you know, go get through the, the floodwaters or what have you, whereas otherwise they probably wouldn't do that. It wouldn't be worth their while to organize the effort to ship a bunch of bottled water to Houston or wherever the place the city was that got smacked. And so yeah. if you think it through, it's, no, actually that high price serves a purpose. And then last but not least, I would say if you're a store owner and you're benefiting from a genuine windfall, meaning, um, you know, you you it's not that you... Like, let's say you, you knew the, the hurricane was coming and you thought, oh, the price might be real high. Let me, in case that happens, just load up on water. And so you end up, you know, bulking up your inventory way beyond what you normally would have on the off chance that the storm hits and then prices go up. Again, you want to reward that activity, right? So it's not just a fact of nature how much bottled water is in the city when the storm hits. If people were far sighted and stocked up, you want to reward that behavior, so that the next time a hurricane comes, uh, you know, the, the crisis isn't as bad. And, but to the extent that, you know, you're honest with yourself, you're a convenience store owner and you know, nah, the, the amount of water I had on hand, the bottled water, I didn't, I didn't bulk up. I just happened to be sitting here. I actually got lucky in the sense, right? The hurricane hit, I didn't die. My store is still open. And instead of me charging $5 for a case, I get to charge 25 That's a pure windfall to me. Okay, you still charge it and then donate that to the Red Cross, right? And so that will ensure, you know, then they can use the money for, you know, needy families or whatever. So the high price still rations the available quantity so that households only take what they really need. But Mm. then if you feel guilty and probably, yeah, the Christian thing to do so you're not benefiting from others' misfortune is, you know, donate it to some philanthropic or give it to the church or whatever, you know, some organization that you think is using the money responsibly, so, so that's what I would say. So it's, yeah. you know, I, to me, that's, so again, you see how that knowledge of economics reassures you that, yeah, you really shouldn't just be able to stick a gun at somebody and say, because I think most Christians would agree if a store owner said, no, I'm charging 25 a case, you couldn't just take out a gun and say, give me the water for the pre-crisis price or I'm going to shoot you. I think most Christians, somebody else to do right, that. most Christians, you can't do that. And so I would just argue, okay, but if you're going to have the government have an anti-price gouging law, aren't you kind of doing that through a proxy? And yeah. so I think to the extent that Christians would shy away from my analysis because they, quote, no, it can't be true or it can't be the right answer to just let them charge whatever the market. I'm trying to show, look at the, the good social consequences. So you're just wrong when you think the way the world works is that following, you know, the straightforward interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount would lead to disaster. Say, no, actually it wouldn't. You think it would, but you're operating out of fear. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's there's this really great uh, movie that I think all Christians should watch called Poverty, Inc. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yep, I've seen um, it. Yeah, uh, it's amazing that when we talk about trade-offs uh, uh, in, in the Austrian school, how being helpful actually is hurtful at times where we think, okay, you know, we buy a pair of shoes and, uh, you know, someone gives them to, to poor people in Africa who don't have shoes. Well, what we've accidentally done is taken out all the shoe uh, manufacturers from the, the, you know, corner store cobbler to, uh, you know, the, the Nike of Kenya or whatever it might be, uh, because we're, we're bringing an influx of cheap, 
sometimes free goods over and we're destroying markets over there. And so by by understand, having a, a proper understanding of, of good economic principles, we're, we're less likely to engage in just just give poor Africa free things instead of saying like, OK, well, maybe we can make, uh, you know, proper short term loans that uh, allows the business to uh, build capital uh, off the bat and then, you know, uh, 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 you know, build machinery that will then employ more people that then they can become self-sufficient. And so they're not always hoping that, you know, Americans over here for the next 20 years are going to keep buying shoes that then they can have free shoes as well. Uh, and and I, once I watched that movie, I thought it was really important to have this this kind of proper understanding of of Christian ethics and values as it comes to economic principles. And so things like uh, donor C, uh, having kind of that one-on-one correlation of here, here's a, a woman who needs a house built and she has zero capital and she's, she doesn't have any, you know, any industry if, if we can give to that person and, and build that one person to then, uh, uh, have, have a direct influence over one person, then th- that's a, a, a more proper understanding of, of how we can, um, contribute, uh, charitably without destroying economies really. Um, you know, and and shoes is just one aspect mm-hmm. of of that movie. Let, yeah, let me just mention there is. It's funny you bring that up. I'm still grappling with this myself. So the the my and I'm just being honest with you intellectually here is parts. Of, so clearly, stuff like the U.S. government giving aid to the Ethiopian government and the guy's just you know withholding food in order to suppress his rival. Right. Clearly that's bad, right? So like you know right. government to government foreign aid I think is a, is a disaster and that's well documented. It's some of the arguments though that poverty inc I have to admit if the argument went through then some of the other standard arguments that free market people use against tariffs uh, are also in trouble. Right? So like a n- normal argument like you would see in in like lessons for the young economist or whatever is like an argument. Oh, we got to keep high tariff barriers because China is trying to send us real cheap goods. Right. And <laughs> right. so then we'd say, yeah, well, on the limit, what if they send us free goods? Are you telling us we're yeah. poor because China sent us free stuff? No, that's good. And so I, I'm just, it's funny. Like, no, that's a great point. Through, and that's so I'm not, point. cause, but you're right. On the other hand, like I wouldn't just let my son live in my house until he was 40 you know what I mean? Like I, I would not merely because I would be upset, but I think I would be doing him a disservice if I just let him loaf around and didn't make kick him out and make him get a job. You know, if mm-hmm. I was just giving him handouts, as it were, indefinitely, even though he was able bodied. And so, yeah, there there is something there. And I'm I haven't fully you know put my finger on exactly what it is. And but but yeah, I have to be careful and admit that some of the arguments people in the free market use regarding the Poverty Inc. movie would knock down the arguments they use when it comes to explaining why free trade is the best policy so there is mm. that yeah but it, and 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 on a christian I think, podcast i have to be honest otherwise i <laughs> my yeah, conscience yeah, will that, zing me yeah that, then the lightning strikes and, <laughs> and we're out um I, I, the, the, there's there's so many the good questions about things that i i, I don't think when i'm i'm just a, a normal everyday christian before i i found uh the school of, of robert murphy that there's there's so many aspects of the world that that I viewed as economics as being either it's the stock market or it's you know building your budget mm-hmm. and so th- there are things like uh, the Federal Reserve and fractional reserve money and fiat money and 
I, I heard I've I've always heard different people talk about how gold is this really good thing to have, uh, um, and and we should re- always return back to the gold standard. Uh, but uh, th- there's so many good things that you talk about um, that that I don't want to just pepper you with with questions that are that are um, important, but that people should should go. Uh, is is there any one of those items that that you feel that people should know the most about? Um, to, to either inform their inform their lives or inform kind of how they should look at uh, economic principles within their country. Okay, um, I don't know if this is going to sound goofy or not, but I think there is something. So I think a biblical Christian should be aware of the history of the classical gold standard and understand that money, you know, was not created by the state. And that the th- you know the pieces of paper that the government prints right now, or even electronic tickets, as it were, you know that's not what money was originally. That the government came in and sort of you know pushed out the, the market's provision and gradually took it over, and then even severed the link to the precious metals, so that we have what's now called state issued fiat money. Um, I think there is a, a a biblical element there, and among other things, the fact that we you know print presidents and stuff on there you know jesus saying you know whose picture is this on the money um i you know i think there's that element as well the 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 narcissism and you know deification of of these uh mere men but i i do think there's something there about like you know there used to be called sound money you know mises refers to that and i i think there's something there like you know honest money some people might use that phrase and i i think there is something there about um you know, that, that the money is real and honest. And, and I know modern economists hearing, especially if they're secular, would roll their eyes and, oh, you fuddy-duddy, you know, with your moralizing. But I really do think there's something there that the money, when it's produced in a market, is honest and sound. And the government, you know, c- coming in, or I should say, I want to say the state, because, you know, some people use the term government pretty broadly, could include the family and the church. But, this, you know, the political course of state coming in and monopolizing that, and then just running the printing press. I mean, besides the fact that they use it to pay for wars and locking people up and other things that I think are pretty unchristian, but just the nature of what they're doing, like that they're hijacking. I mean, I think it's institutionalized theft, among other, you know, it's counterfeiting in a certain sense. And um, so anyway, I, I think, and I think it's no surprise that a lot of people I know who are really... Um, who track with that line of thinking in terms of they're really against central banking. And so they also happen to be Bible believing Christians. So there is that overlap. And so the extent that some of your listeners are Christian, but yet they never really looked into this stuff. I, I would encourage them to, to read up on, on, you know, you could get it in my book choice for examples where, you know, it'll, it'll spell it out. But I, that, that's something that's relatively new to me. But in other words, when I, was into Mises and Austrian economics when I was younger. I wasn't that big on, you know, the, the commodity money either way. That, that didn't mean much to me. And I'm, I'm saying the more, the older I get and quote, the wiser I get, hopefully the more I see like, wow, in terms of the, the stuff that the state has done, like, yeah, the military draft is horrible and, you know, the fugitive slave law and that's horrible. But in terms of just taking over or, you know, taking over the, that's a good way of putting it. I think a lot of Christians understand the horror of the state taking over the school system. And I'm saying, yeah. And the state took over money production too. And that's really bad yeah. also. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 
it's 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 one of the articles that I, I really want to write for for my blog is is I I think we get our our political viewpoint too much and it, I'm only speaking from from the, the 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 points of view that that I interact with the most is Christians tend to say you know I I can't vote for the Democrats because all they do want to do is kill babies but then they'll take their you know their economic uh, point of view. Uh, n- not from their Christian worldview, but from being a Republican or you know w- w- whatever it might be. And mm-hmm. so uh, th- that that's one of the things that I want to encourage people on this podcast is bringing everything under the central authority of Christ and saying, not not what what agrees with my Christian worldview, but what from my Christian worldview can I derive, you know, principles from uh, investment, um, you know, it, it, doing business like uh, j- just. God telling us to have even scales, and that's mm-hmm. not just even scales with other Christians or in in money. It's it's how you deal with people, especially people who are different than you. You know, hold hold them to a standard that that you have balance and the, that you have these even scales, and that you don't have uh, you know a, 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 your certain idea of well, this is evil because it's killing babies and that goes against God's will. But then. We like it when this this other group is in power because you know they're really ragging on those social justice warriors or right. the, the the crazy commies are, are out there. Why is communism bad? It's because it has the improper view of man as being being uh, you know a, a morally good or neutral, and that um, that through force sharing should be accomplished. And so. Um, I, I, not that I want to get too political here, although I have my own ideas, but I, I, that's one of the reasons why I wanted well, to have Yeah, yeah have just you if on. I could yeah, follow yeah, up please. on that. Um, please. So that, that's a good way of putting it, that for those of your listeners who are, you know, I, I really like the U.S. Constitution, that kind of stuff, go look at what it does. When it, when it talks about money, It's I think it's like Congress shall have the authority to, I think, coin and regulate. Maybe it says money, something like that. It certainly says coin money. And so people think, I think nowadays, oh, yeah, so that, that's why they have the Federal Reserve and they can – and no, back when they wrote those words, I mean, to them, money was gold and silver, you know, and and so all – it had to do with the, you know, ensuring fair weights and measures, like you were saying, you know, the biblical principle of not defrauding the people that you're doing business with. And so the point of, the, of them coining the money was not that the government was allowed to just take a piece of paper and declare it to be money – it was to, you know, stamp it so everybody could recognize, okay, yeah, this is an ounce of gold. You know, that that was the, the purpose. Right. Great. Uh, like I said, I have, I have so many more questions, but uh, they'll, they'll exist for another time. If, uh, if you'll come back on, uh, we'd love to have you back whenever. Um, I, l- let me just uh, uh, ooh and ah over you once again. Uh, everyone should go out and, and get a, a book by Dr. Murphy. He's written on, on so many great things. Uh, his blog is, is amazing. Um, uh, he, he, he brings in economics, politics. Uh, uh, um, he's got his own podcast. Uh, one thing that I really enjoy that, that I get a lot is whenever I see uh, Dr. Murphy talk, his analogies that he pulls, and I, I don't know if it's from just your, your school of thought with Austrian economics and needing to to have really good analogies, but I view your analogies in things when you're trying to explain a heavy concept, you, you'll you'll not only be entertaining, but that that you'll kind of hit it from three different angles and say, oh, if you didn't understand, you know, uh, uh, this from this perspective, here's two more examples that I that I just think that you uh, that you always hit out of the park, and and you're 
you're you're you're not an economist who, like I said, has the ivory tower tweed and and everything that that you really do speak. Uh, uh, you know, non-Christianese, non-economicies uh, to 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 people like us on on the lower level, trying to trying to go through Wikipedia and looking up Austrian economics and not understanding it, but then picking up lessons for the uneconomists and not feeling bad that you're 35 year old, years old picking up another textbook. So, <laughs> I, I greatly appreciate your work. Um, I greatly appreciate who you are. I greatly appreciate your. Um, your, your, your statements from your Christian point of view and uh, people should uh, definitely ch- uh, check you out and, um, and also um, look into uh, 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 the, your, your, your other podcast, uh, especially for the infinite ba- banking concept. Um, and I'm sorry that uh, we recently lost uh, Nelson Nash, uh, who uh, was also an amazing Christian. Uh, your interviews with him uh, just uh, oh, I, I was smiling through. You know, you did like an hour and a half with him, and I'm smiling that this kind of old timer knew this, you know, great awesome thing, and that uh, that he put it on paper, wrote a book, and that 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 you and Carlos Nash uh, 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 or, uh, came 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 back and 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 wrote books about it and and teach other people about it. So I, I I appreciate all that you do. Oh, thanks so much for the kind words, Patrick. And and yeah, as as far as Nelson Nash, he was the guy who, uh, again, not that I ever consciously said, oh, I'm, I'm not going to share my faith or whatever, but he, he was just so bold in, in quote, mixing his, his religion <laughs> in with financial things that kind of gave me the courage and the push to say, you know, I really need to not, you know, keep, keep my uh, lamp under a bushel or whatever <laughs> that phrase is, that, that, you know, to, to not be afraid and I don't want to, oh, I don't want to offend somebody by, bring, you know, mentioning Jesus in this context that, no, people need to hear about them. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, is there any uh, resources or people that you want to direct people to? I'll, I'll definitely have the links uh, for for your books and and podcast in the description. And uh, is is there just any general message to uh, American or not, to Christians in general from a, a Christian and an economic uh, uh, person like yourself? Um. <laughs> read the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if this is what you're asking, but but yeah, I mean, I'm going to be debating uh, someone at the Soho Forum on um, Christianity and, and economics and things like that. Um, so if, if people want to follow my blog to be sure to to catch that, that might be something of interest. So yeah, consultingbyrpm.com is the central clearinghouse of all my stuff. So that's if people want to learn more, that's where they should go. Great. And uh, again, thank you. And uh, uh, talking to Brad Pitt uh, from my perspective uh, here. So uh, uh, thank you. And uh, we'd love to have you back anytime. Thanks for having me, Patrick. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you.